Welcome to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. In chapter 55 of Isaiah, verse 11, God tells the prophet, So will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Standing on this promise, T.D. Stubblefield Ministries is committed to sharing biblical principles with individuals, families, churches, communities, and our world, believing that only the Word of God can advance us in God's perfect plan for our lives, where we can experience liberating faith, lasting hope, and unconditional love in a relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Dr. T.D. Stubblefield with today's Advancing Word. There is a passage from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. The New International Version of Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Today I want to share from this passage and the thought I want to lift before us is today's best value at yesterday's low price. Our passage today is taken from the prophecy of Isaiah. And by all accounts, Isaiah was a prophet of very profound and deep insight. Among the prophets that write in the Old Testament, Isaiah is considered the dean of Old Testament prophets. He saw clearly down through the centuries of time and anticipated in his writings the birth, the ministry, the passion, the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the most expansive and voluminous of the writing prophets in terms of just sheer length of his prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy spans 66 chapters. And if you read the prophecy, there is a clear, obvious division between chapters 39 and 40. The first 39 chapters have a similar focus. And then the last 27 chapters move in a different direction. Bible students know that 66, which is the number of chapters in Isaiah's prophecy, is the same as the number of books in the Bible. The 39 books in the Old Testament clearly lines with the 39 chapters that constitute the first half of Isaiah's prophecy. And then the 27 books of the New Testament align with the latter part of the prophecy. If you said that Jesus had a favorite book of the Bible, and the Bible in Jesus' day was the Old Testament, that Isaiah would be that book. For the Lord quoted in his ministry more from the book of Isaiah 
than he did any other prophecy. This text has haunted me in a helpful way as I prayed about what to share on this Sunday. As I read this text earlier in the week and it played a kind of melody in my mind and in my heart, I began to think about how much has changed since I was a child. One of the things that has changed significantly is today we pay much more for things than we paid when I was born. When I was born, the average rent was $80 a month. A pound of ground beef was 53 cents. When I was born, you could get a loaf of bread, wonder or otherwise, for 16 cents a loaf. A gallon of milk would cost you 96 cents. A postage stamp, three cent a stamp. <laughs> hold on, hold on, a gallon of gas was 20 cents a gallon. You could walk over to Sears, you could get a cotton knit blouse for $1.98. And then if you wanted to go out and buy a brand new two-door Buick sedan, the year I was born, it would have cost $2,280. Today, these would be bargains that none of us would pass up. But what I want to tell you is that the greatest bargain of all is in our text today. And what makes it so wonderful, what makes it so marvelous, what makes it so great is that it is still today's best value at yesterday's low price. And so when I ask the text the question, why is this true? Why is it today's best value at yesterday's low price? Four things emerged out of the text. First of all, it's today's best value at yesterday's low price because it constitutes a pleasing proposal. A pleasing proposal. In verse 1, what we have is one of the most arresting, moving, marvelous proposals or invitations in the Word of God. I have over the years received invitations, but nothing paramount to the invitation in this text today. We have here, according to the prophet, the words of the Lord himself, who says, Come all you who are thirsty. What a marvelous proposal. What a marvelous invitation. It's not the only one in scripture, but it's one of my favorites. When the prophet opens this book, he opens it with an invitation or proposal. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as lamb's wool. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, we have another wonderful proposal. When the Lord himself says, come unto me, all you the labor and a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The image or the metaphor or the picture in this text is of a Mideastern monarch in riches and splendor, entertaining guests. It's good to know that the greatest banquet of all, you and I 
have received an invitation. But there is a condition. There is a condition to this pleasing proposal. The text says that you got to be thirsty. By inference, you have to be hungry. In other words, you have to have an appetite. They that hunger, they that thirst, the kind of appetite that Jacob had at the brook Jabbok, anticipating his brothers, what he thought would be vengeance. And all night he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Or like the psalmist who said, as the deer pants for the water brook, so I pant for the Lord. Or the church father, the African church father, Augustine, whose immortal words still ring true today. My heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Or like blind Bartimaeus, when Jesus came through his town, this man who had been blind for all of his life, he cries out, Lord, help me. Folk got upset with him, said, you ought to shut up. You causing a distraction. You causing a disruption. He kept on crying out. Lord, help me. And when you know that can anybody else help you but the Lord, then you will keep on crying out. It will inspire us what I call a healthy, dependent independence because we can't make it by ourselves. Our responsibility is to create a thirst in our children. When they come to church, that thirst should be encouraged as well. So many young people are estranged from the church because the thirst they had for Jesus has been discouraged. He offers us this pleasing proposal. Come unto me all that thirst. Come ye to the waters, and he that have no money, come by and drink and eat. But not only is there a pleasing proposal, there's a pervasive problem. In 2A, the text allows us to consider the possibility that in spite of how wonderful this proposal is, there are times when people choose the wrong thing. We find ourselves looking for love, looking for joy, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Like C.S. Lewis said, sometimes we're like little children making mud pies in the sand because we don't understand what it means to have an offer of a holiday at sea. We are just far too easily pleased. There are distractions. There are things that can happen that will keep us from enjoying the proposal, from taking advantage of it. It's not the money in the bank that makes you a rich person. It's the money you can bank on in your heart. I'm talking about spiritual currency that makes you a rich person. Job was a rich man, but he lost everything. But he was still rich because at the end of the day, he could say all my appointed times, I'm going to wait till my change come. He said, I know my Redeemer lives. And if worms destroy this body, after my flesh I will see God. One of the things about growing older is that the sense of our own mortality gives us a clearer focus 
and a greater sense of urgency. The late Will Rogers, who was a humorist and social commentator, he once said, the older we get, the few things there are that seems worth waiting for in line. I don't want to spend my money, spiritual currency, my emotional energy, my passion on stuff that do not last. This old world is not my home. There's a pervasive problem. What you spend in your life on? What are you spending that's gonna last? Rider trucks and U-Hauls don't go to cemeteries. You see one, call me. Call me collect. Cause I want to witness it. Job said, naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. Lord gives. Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Good as life has been. And Jesus has been good to me. I still recognize that my best days are not behind me. My best days are in front of me. Because eyes have not seen, ears have not heard what the Lord has prepared for those that love him. So there's a pervasive problem of pleasing proposal, but there's a pressing priority. If you understand what I'm saying, text says you got to hear. You've got to incline your ear to the Lord. You've got to put your ears to the doorpost. You've got to live your life so that the spiritual has priority and preeminence. You have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, realizing all these other things shall be added unto you. There is a compelling footnote at the end of Acts chapter 2. If you read too fast, you will miss the significance. Then they that gladly received the word of God were baptized. And the same day there was added to their number about 3,000 souls. If you read Acts 2.41, it could have said people. It could have said persons. It could have said, in translation, individuals. But God does not look at folk like we do. God looks on the heart. And we can't get caught up in what my mentor, the late Dr. Manuel C. Scott said, is the tyranny of the quantifiable. It's not about packed pews. Because packed pews don't mean anything. If the people who are packing the pews are not packed. And so you see a pleasing proposal. You see a pervasive problem. You see a pressing priority. But lest I keep you long, there's a priceless provision. He says in this text, give ear and come to me that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you my faithful love. Now God promises in the last movement of the text, that he will enter into an everlasting covenant 
with his children. I'm so glad I know something about this everlasting covenant. You see, there's a difference between everlasting and eternal. Eternal has no beginning and has no ending. But when the Bible says everlasting, it's teaching us about God's eminence, how in him we live, we move, and we have our very being. He shortened his stride in eternity so he could walk with us. He could talk with us. This part of the text is compelling. It's comprehensive. But it is also Christ-centered because of the sure mercies of David. David wrote about it in Psalm 100. He said, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endureth to all generations. And so I'm talking about today's best value at yesterday's low price. And just in case somebody think they don't have enough to pay, I don't want to do a game show today, but I'm here to tell you that the price is right. The price is right if you want to get right. Price is right if you want to feel better. Price is right, but he gave us a clue. If you want to have a better life, the price is right. You know I thought about it, and I said there's 66 reasons why the price is right. I want to tell you, when you walk through the scripture, the 66 chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah, but he gave us a clue that there's 66 good reasons why the price is right and why Jesus is today's best value at yesterday's low price. If you look in Genesis, he's the seed of woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the mercy seat. In Numbers, he is a standard bearer. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet likened to Moses. In Joshua, he's a strong deliverer. In Judges, he is my leaning post. In Ruth, he's everlasting love. Where you go, I'll go, and your people will be my people. In Samuel, he's a man after God's own heart. In Kings, he's a still small voice. In Chronicles, he's a lion of the tribe of Judah. In Ezra, he's a ready scribe. In Nehemiah, he's an awesome God. In Esther, his name never shows up, but he's a silent witness. In Job, he's a voice of the whirlwind. And in Psalms, he's my keeper. I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. In Proverbs, he's matchless wisdom. And Ecclesiastes, he's time of Above time. In Song of Solomon's, he's my lover. In Isaiah, he's a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, a everlasting father, a mighty God. In Jeremiah, he's like fire, a shut up in my bone. In Lamentations, he's a fountain of tears. In Ezekiel, he's a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Yes, he is. And in Daniel, he'll turn a the lion's den into your den. In Hosea, he's wounded love. In Joel, he's a consuming fire. 
In Amos, he's a roaring lion. In Obadiah, he's the kingdom of the Lord. In Jonah, he's a pursuing presence. In Michael, he's a mountain of love. In Nahum, he's a stronghold. In the day of trouble, in a time of trouble, he'll hide you in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he's shown up or will hide you. In Habakkuk, he's my holy one. In Zephaniah, he's frustrated righteousness. In Haggai, he's a city of, of the glorious temple. In Zechariah, he's the branch of holiness. And in Malachi, he's the Lord that changed not. Got 39 down. Can I do another 27? In Matthew, he's the son of Abraham. In Mark, he's the son of man. In Luke, he's the son of Adam. In John, he's the son of God, the eternal logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Acts, he's a baptizing Holy Ghost. In Romans, he's a just God and the justifier of those that come to him. In Corinthians, he's the head of the church and we are members in particular. In Galatians, he's a son of the bondswoman. In Ephesians, he'll bless us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Do we have a witness in Philippians? He's the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. In Colossians, he got the whole world in his hands. In Thessalonians, he's the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. In Timothy and Titus, he manifests his word through preaching. In Hebrews, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in James, he's a faithful witness. In John, he's fulfilling fellowship. And in Jude, he's the faith once delivered to the saints. I got one more book. Do we have a witness? I got one more book. Got one more reason why he's today's best failure and yesterday's low price. In Revelation, he's Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. Somebody here didn't get what I said. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Somebody here ought to testify why he's today's best value and yesterday's low price. Can I help you out? He's a bridge over troubled water. He's a doctor and a lawyer. He may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. He's a mother when you're motherless. Do we have a witness? He's a father when you're fatherless. He's a doctor in a sick room. He's a lawyer in a courtroom. Is he able? 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 You have been listening to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. We pray that you have been encouraged with what your ears have heard and your hearts have felt. Explore our website at tdstubblefield.org. 
for more information about us and to obtain resources provided by TD Stubblefield Ministries. Until next time, be blessed and remember to stop stressing and start stepping, advancing in faith, hope, and love by reading and applying the Word of God so you can stand on certain truth for uncertain times.